Thank you, Mary, for that. Anybody need notes out there? Ecclesiastes 7. Tonight. Ecclesiastes 7. Anybody else need notes? We've got them. Ecclesiastes 7. We're going to read the first nine verses here this evening. Ecclesiastes 7. A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death and the day of one's birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men. And the living will lay it to his heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by the sadness of the countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. Surely oppression maketh the wise man mad, and a gift destroyeth the heart. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for angry for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. And we'll take that last phrase tonight, the bosom of fools. And this will be the title of our talk in Ecclesiastes 7, verses 1 through 9. Let's pray. Father, bless us thou. As we get into your word, I pray that you would give us direction, that you'd give us wisdom, and that you would help us all to profit in our lives from this instruction. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you have ever been to Europe? Anybody ever been to Europe before? Okay. How many of you have ever been around Europeans who think that perfume is a substitute for a bath? All right. Substitute for a bath. Um, our family on my dad's side is Dutch. And anytime the Dutch relatives come, we all know really quickly that they're here. As soon as they walk off the plane, you know they're here. And uh, the smell comes with them. And it's a unique smell. It's a smell that says, I tried to hide my body odor with this bottle of stuff. Right? So it's kind of a weird, weird dynamic. Now, when you go over to, to third world countries like India, they don't try to hide it. They're just out with it. We stink. We're not going to try to fool you. We're not going to try to perform, per, pour perfume on ourselves to hide it. This is who we are. What you see is what you get. And you get up close in for some hugs, and you find out, whoo, some things are really happening under there. And, and so that's, you know, not a great way to start, but it, has, it ties into our first verse, right? It ties into our first verse. And it could be a house that you know when one of your kids walks in the house after a long day because the smell comes before them. Well, this first verse kind of gets into this. A good name is better than precious ointment. Okay, this precious ointment, this expensive perfume. Better is a good name than that. And what it's kind of trying to tell us is this. You can pour 
some expensive perfume on something that doesn't smell good, and it's not going to make it all better. There has to be a good foundation there before the perfume can even help, before the perfume can even be wonderful. And you, you could take a bottle of the most expensive perfume in the world and put it on James Safran, and it will not make him beautiful. All right, you know what I'm saying? You guys get where I'm going with this? I just picked on him. Allie, she, she agrees. Right? She thinks he's beautiful. Okay. Well, I guess, you know, mothers and wives think, think things like that, but everybody else knows the truth. Um, you... <laughs> You can try to take somebody who doesn't have a good reputation and you can try to put some perfume on top of it, but all it does is make it smell strange. It doesn't ever come out with a good, sweet savor before God. Now, I want to show you where this correlates to something in the New Testament. Look over at 2 Corinthians 2. Smell is not one of the senses that we really get into that much when we're preaching. But it's in the Bible. Right? It's right in here. Now you think that's funny, but I'm being honest. We talk about sight. We talk about what we hear and what we focus on and touching, connecting. But we don't talk much about smells. Look at 2 Corinthians 2, verse number 14. Now thanks be unto God, which always causes, causeth us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest, look at this, the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved, and in them that perish. To the one we are the savor of death unto death, and unto the other savor of life unto life, and who is sufficient for these things? So it starts to talk about the smell of godliness. And when God smells a life that is like Christ, it is a sweet savor to Him. And when we walk by people with our lives and with our names, and they're solid before God, that people perk up and say, wow, that's good. That, that's pleasing to my eyes. That's pleasing to my ears. That's pleasing even to my nose. That's where this starts in Ecclesiastes 7. Now, Solomon had already used this type of topic in Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 22, where he said a good name is greater than riches, or better than great riches. And so here in this first verse, and in your notes, the value of a good name is seen regularly in life. But look at the end of the verse but even more in death. See, a good name's important in life. It'll get you places. It'll open doors for you. Your reputation goes before you when you meet with other people. But a good name in death is much more important. Now look at the comparison here. And the day of death than the day of one's birth. Now that pronoun, the antecedent, is a fool. So the day of a wise man, a man with a good reputation, the day of his death is better than the day of a fool's birth. 
Now we could take this all the way to the end of the scriptures and one of the thing, when I think about names and reputation, our name doesn't mean anything if the name of Jesus isn't stamped on it. Right? Hey, your name is actually meaningless without the name of Jesus Christ. And so when I think about names, you know what I think about? I think about the fact that my name is in the book of life. My name is in the book of life. And when this body dies, and I'm in the presence of the Lord, it's because of a name that's written in the book of life that is stamped by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's better than anything. That's more precious than anything on this earth. More precious than any gold, any diamond, any ointment. Okay, so that gets us into thinking this way in verse number one. Now, we get into this topic of death, and it's not really a fan favorite. But Solomon takes several verses of this portion of Ecclesiastes to talk about death and the house of mourning. And when you look at it, it's sort of a paradox. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to us until we get down and we search it out a little bit. Look at verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Now, when you look at that, you're thinking, okay, let me get this right. What he's saying is it's better for me to go to a funeral than it is to go to Golden Corral. And you start to think about that. Ah, I'm not sure about that. Although I've been to Golden Corral and I've had experiences that kind of felt, well, we won't get into that, but you start to weigh these things. The house of mourning, the house of feasting. Which one would be better for me today? And most of the time, the house of feasting. And then he says in verse 3, and we're going to hit this one too, sorrow is better than laughter. And you sit there and think, well, how could that be? I thought that laughter was the best medicine. Right? I thought that laughter is what makes the heart better. And, and that's true. It's not opposed to what Solomon has said in the Proverbs about how laughter can heal. This is a different type of sorrow. We have to get it in context here. So we're going to do this in your notes in these two verses. Let's start with the second item in your notes. The house of feasting often shuts out the thoughts of God and eternity. But the house of mourning is focused on them. Now this is why the house of mourning is better for you and for me than the house of feasting. Because when we're in the house of feasting, we don't think about relying on God nearly as much. When we're in the house of feasting, we don't think about our need for God. When we're in the house of feasting, we don't consider eternity. We consider the fact that that guy is going to walk by with a skewer of Brazilian meat again in just a few minutes, and he could cut a little portion that's going to go on my little plate, and I'm going to grab it with my tongs, and I'm going to put it in my mouth. Apparently, some of you have not been to, to Kanos, right? What did you say? Somebody else said a different one? Is it Tucanos? Is that what he said? He says it different. Tucanos? Tuscanos. I like that. Hey, no matter what you call it, it's good. Right? Tuscano, Tucano, 
whatever, tin can If they've got that meat in there, it's good. And when you sit down there with your family or your friends in the house of feasting, and that guy walks by with the skewer of the grilled pineapple, you don't put your light on red, right? You know what I'm saying? Your little dealie, your little knobby on the table, it doesn't matter how full you are. You turn that thing over to green, because he needs to stop at your little plate again and cut off some more of that grilled pineapple. That's the house of feasting. Now, how many of you have ever been to the house of feasting and it caused you mourning? <laughs> right? Soon after. That's another problem with the house of feasting. Like, ooh, I shouldn't have done this. Now, just throwing this out there. Have you ever been, how many of you have ever been to Tucano's? Tucano's, Tucano's, right? Have you ever had those little pieces of bread? I don't even know what they're called. And they, they're about this big around, and they have like a cheesy thing. Anybody know the name of them? What are they? Yeah, there's a Brazilian name. I'm looking for the Brazilian name. We just make one up. How about Polini? Is that a good name? So you grab some Polini, and, and the thing is, you can be as full as you possibly humanly could be, and there's always room for one more Polini. That kind of sounds like Bolini which is another thing. I get myself into trouble. We're, we were supposed to have a missionary tonight, and so I didn't have my lesson printed out, so I had to come in this afternoon and throw this together. So I'm not stalling for time. Don't think that. I'm just having fun with you. But who, who is laughing? This is wrong to do this. But you take one more of those, and you put it in your mouth, and it melts. That's the house of feasting. And when you're there, you know what you're thinking about? Right now. Here and now. Enjoying life now. I'm not thinking about two hours from now. I'm not thinking about the drive home. I'm thinking about now. And what should be going next into my mouth so that it can go down into my belly. But at the house of mourning, it's a totally different perspective. The house of mourning, I'm not thinking about now. I'm thinking about eternity. I'm thinking about God. I'm thinking about forever. I'm thinking about there's something much bigger than this moment in my life. And so there's a big difference between the immediate and the eternal. And these two venues give us the opportunity, because they're so opposed to each other, to get to these places in our lives where we don't normally go. The house of mourning. He's focused on those. So Solomon says it's better to go to the house of mourning. Any place that makes you focus on God and eternity is a good place for you to go. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. Now when you read that, I know that you're thinking, how in the world does that work? How does a sad countenance make my heart better? This is where we have to kind of get into these uh, languages, the original languages, the Hebrew, that the Old Testament was written, the Greek and the New Testament. And we have to understand what it's talking about here. It's not talking about sadness as much as it is about seriousness. See, the opposite of laughter 
Is it crying? It's seriousness, right? Um, have you ever done that reverse psychology on somebody where you say, Melina, don't you smile. Don't, uh, don't you smile. And she's smiling right now because she always smiles. The opposite of laughter is being serious. It's being sober. Okay, now, sober is a word that's used a lot in the New Testament. And it's not talking about refraining from alcohol, although the Bible does address that. It's talking about a serious demeanor toward life and eternity. To be sober. In fact, one of the key verses that we know in the Bible, 1 Peter 5. Be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. One of the traits of pastors and deacons in 1 Timothy 3 is that they have a sober mind. Doesn't mean they can never laugh, but it means that they're sober. Here's a stat that you won't hear very often. Maybe you've never perhaps thought about this before. Guess how many times recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did Jesus ever laugh? That would be none. He never laughed. You know why? He came here for a very important role. He came here with a very important mission. And he didn't have any time for mirth. He went to some feasts. I'm sure he did laugh. I'm sure he did enjoy life. But the Gospels don't record that. They record that even when he was at the feast, he was talking to the people at the feast about their hearts. He was talking to the publicans and sinners in the room about their lives. He was talking to the Pharisees about their hypocrisy. And so Jesus had a sober mind. In your notes we say it this way. A sober mind that is centered on truth brings an individual renewal. Reckless mirth is the time waster Solomon tried. We already went through chapter 2. He tried everything. He tried wine. He tried women. He tried the laugh factory. He tried to have comedians in. He tried anything he could to make his heart feel better. You know what made his heart feel better? To actually process the thoughts of life. That's what made his heart better. That's what he's saying here in this verse is that the heart is made better by this seriousness, by this sadness of the countenance, by sitting there and considering life. David called it meditation. When we meditate on God's precepts, it inflates God in our lives and it deflates us. That agrees with what John the Baptist said in John 3, one of my favorite verses. He said, He must increase but I must decrease. Think about that. It correlates. It's the same thing. He must increase, but I must decrease. When we are getting involved with laughter and enjoyment, who are we thinking about? Usually about me. What I feel, what I like, how funny I am. Right? Have you ever gotten into I'm really funny mode? Now, my wife says I get into this occasionally. And she even says I do it at church, which is kind of annoying and frustrating. Um, she missed because uh, Sophie was sick. And I got home today, and she said, I heard you thought you were really funny today. <laughs> well, what are you talking about? I just walked in the door. 
well, somebody tweeted such and such or Facebook or whatever. You, you miss a service and you go home and get encouragement like that. That's godliness right there. I'm just teasing. Um, it really did happen, though. You thought you were really funny today. And my kids do that to me, too. That's, you know, you can see how wounded I am in heart. But you know, laughter, you know what laughter does? It makes us think about us. Right? This young man down right here, Josh Tilford, he's one of the funniest guys I know. And when he's in funny mode, you know who he's thinking about? Josh Tilford. I'm correlating him with me. I'm not picking on you. He said the same thing about me. We're all the same way. We go and hear funny things and funny people and funny songs and funny books. Why? To make me feel a certain way. But does it move us forward in life? Nope. You're going to walk out of the funny movie in the same condition you walked into the funny movie. But seriousness, a sober mind about who God really wants you to be, that will actually make your heart better. Laughter doesn't make your heart better, but seriousness does. So that's what this is talking about. Hope you're not confused. Verse number four. Now this, this gets even more intense because it, here's what it says. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Think about it. Where do fools like to hang out? They like to hang out at places where everybody knows their name. Right? They like to hang out at places where they don't have to deal with their miserable sorrow reality. Sorry reality. They, they get to drink it off or laugh it off or put it off until the next day. That's where fools like to hang out. Serious people, sober people, don't mind going to the house of mourning, whatever you're going to correlate that to in your life, because that's where wisdom is. That's where truth is. My grandmother, not Oma, who was here this morning, but my grandma Bertram, she's, uh, see, she was born in 1928. She's going to be 86 this year in August. And she went through a stage for about 10 years where all the people that she knew from her whole life, they, they were dying. Like she'd pick up the paper and somebody she went to school with had died. And uh, seriously, we'd check, touch base with her and she was going to three, four funerals every week for years. Like, oh, I knew this person. I should go to the funeral. And we're sitting there like, Grandma, you don't really have to go to every funeral in the whole valley. You know, it's kind of what we're thinking. Like, do they have food there? <laughs> what are we doing here? And we're thinking this, you know, from afar. But when you look at a verse like this, you know what she's doing? She was being serious about her life. She was thinking about mortality, about eternity. And she's at a place now where she, she told me, when I saw her a few months ago, she told me my last friend that I knew from when I was a kid died. 
There's nobody that she knows from her childhood, from her family, anybody who was around when she was a kid. Nobody. She knows all of her kids and grandkids and great-grandkids, but you get to the point I'm saying is, is that reflection time of thinking about where's my life headed? How's it going to get there? Is it going to get there by me laughing for years of my life? Or is it going to get there by some sober, serious reality? In your notes, fools don't like to deal with truth and reality in their hearts. That's why there is an abundance of houses of mirth. Dublin, Ireland. Walk downtown. There is a bar, sometimes two bars, every block in downtown Dublin. I mean, everywhere you go, that's all they have. Everywhere they go. Why? Because every night they go in to get rid of their sorrow. And they wake up the next morning and what do they still have? Their sorrow. And so that night they go there to get rid of their sorrow. And it's one of the saddest cities I've ever been to. Because people are trying to go to a house of mirth where they can sing the song of fools for a while, but it doesn't deal with their problems. And that's what verse 6 is about. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. I skip verse 5. I want to read this one again too. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. <laughs> There's a contrast here. Have you ever had somebody point out one of your faults? How does your flesh feel about that? Does your flesh like that? Does your flesh like it when somebody calls you on the carpet about something? Or says that you have a character flaw? Or that you have an issue? No, your flesh rises up. The hair on your neck stands up straight. Okay? You're a human being. How dare they call that on you? How dare they point that out to you? Now, what is that? Well, that's the rebuke of the wise. And here's what we say in your notes. This, if you don't get any other one, I think this may be the one of the night. Godly reproof offends the flesh, but benefits the spirit. Fool's songs please the flesh, but injure the soul. You know what we all like? We like our flesh to feel good. So we like to be in environments that make our flesh feel good. That's why a lot of modern churches, the whole thing is a feel-good package. We're going to come in and we're going to sing some songs that feel good, and there's definitely some spiritual songs that, that are that way. But then we're going to have somebody get up and give a talk about how good life is and how rich we're all going to be. And you know the largest church in America is? It's in Houston, Texas. And their guy gets up and talks every week, and he's even written books about this, about how prosperous everybody's going to be. His first name's Joel. Yeah, you may have seen his books and his perm um, when you grab the book. And Joel's always talking about how great life's going to be. Now, there was a guy before him who did this. His name was Robert Schuler. And uh, his ministry was, they built this thing called the Crystal Cathedral down in Orange County, California. 
the Crystal Cathedral, about two and a half years ago, they totally went bankrupt because they owed their own creditors on their property $48.5 million. Something good was going to happen to them. That's what he said every week. Something good is going to happen to you. I've heard Robert Schuler speak before. Here's the deal. You need somebody to stick their finger in your face and tell you a godly reality. That's what you need. That's what I need. You know, every Monday what I do the whole day, I sit in my office and listen to sermons. Because I need preached to. I need people to stick their finger in my face and tell me stuff from God's Word. And I'm the same way as you. When people get on my faults, oh, that doesn't feel good. When people get on other people's faults, oh, go get them. Go get them. That's why in Baptist churches like this one, when you talk about abortion and homosexuality and pornography and the sins that none of us are doing, of course, then go get them, Pastor. But when you talk about hypocrisy, Pharisees, lack of communication in the home, dishonesty in the heart, we don't feel as good. We start checking our watch. Is he going to get done? Right? You going to finish this up soon? Godly reproof offends the flesh. Here's a verse to know. Psalm 119, verse 165. Here's what it says. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. That means the truth won't knock them off course. The truth is not when it's going to knock them out. You know people, and I know people, that the truth is the thing that offends them the most. Like you tell them the truth, and they will deliberately never speak to you again. You tell them the truth, and they're done with you. Some of your kids have grown up as adults and they've gone through times where they didn't talk to you for a year or two or three years because you told them the truth about something. And it, it's a rough deal when you meet somebody who won't hear the truth, but they'll hear the talk of fools all the time. That's what this verse is. But that's verse 6 is so sad. As the crackling of thorns under the pot shows the laughter of the fool. In your notes. It is the very fire consuming their souls that produces the crackling and cackling of fools. That attractive lifestyle that is painted in the television commercials about being free and single and doing whatever you feel like and you go with a guy, you can go with a girl, you can live it up and everything will be good and the glass will be shining bright and the alcohol, as it's poured, is going to pour in just a diamond-type feel. And everything's beautiful about that picture. But it's this verse. It's this consuming fire of a fool whose life is being burned up and wasted. And uh, there's no reason for any of us to burn up and waste our lives because they've been given by God. They're a gift. Next thing, verse 7. Surely oppression maketh a wise man mad, and a gift destroyeth the heart. So this is attached. Now, this starts a new paragraph in the, in the passage, but it's also attached to the old paragraph. Here we've been talking about the fools and their laughter and their mirth and what a waste that is. And now, verse 7, 
the first part of it says, Surely oppression maketh a wise man mad. If you have a heart of wisdom for God and you look at the foolishness that's going around, around you, it'll drive you crazy. Like if you spend your life trying to figure out why people do stupid things, you are going to officially go crazy. Because as long as we're on the planet, people are going to do stupid things. I mean, they're just going to do things that make no sense. That's what the oppression of fools is. Um, sometimes, and I say it in your notes, let's just say it the way it says in your notes. The apparent success of fools on this earth can drive wise men crazy. And when you look around at other people who are making bad decisions, and yet they seem to have cash in their pocket, and they seem to have the nice cars, and they seem to have everything going for them, it'll drive you insane. Like, I'm trying to do right. I'm trying to live for God. And I'm driving a 1989 Ford Tempo. And my buddy from high school, who's made every bad decision, had three wives, he's only 29 years old, been arrested, been this, been that, and he's driving, you know, a Lamborghini. Or whatever. Maybe not a Lamborghini. Step it back a little bit. What's a step below a Lamborghini? A 2001 Ford Mustang. Yellow. A yellow 2001 Ford Mustang. But, but we look at other people around us and we try to gauge our lives on that. And it can make you be frustrated with your own life. And that's why the end of the verse says, And a gift destroyeth the heart. We say in this next sentence, one simple bribe can turn a wise man into a fool. You can try to walk the straight and narrow. It is take one of the devil's gifts, just one, and it will change your entire heart. That's all it takes. Sell out one time to the devil. Sell out one time to the gifts of this world, and it can change your entire heart, that pure, humble heart, to go against God. I hate to see kids who have grown up with a pure heart who take that one gift from the world or the devil, and all of a sudden they're a different person. And the next time you see them, there's a coldness that's come over them. There's an unattached look. There's a disattachment from the church community. And it's so sad because it just takes one little bribe. A gift destroyeth the heart. That's what it's talking about. It's not talking about a Christmas gift. It's not talking about giving roses to your wife. I can't give her roses, Pastor, because the Bible says a gift destroys the heart. It's not what that's talking about, all right? Please do not take my sermon and beat your spouse over the head with that verse. It's not what it's talking about. It's talking about buying into a worldly system and say, you know what? If everybody else is getting some, I might as well get some too. And I'm not saying you're going to become like Harry Reid, who bought $31,000 of gifts from his granddaughter with campaign fund money. Yeah, Harry Reid, $31,000. He bought it from his own granddaughter who was in business and bought the gifts so that he could give it out to his political friends. But it's not corruption, because he did it, right? Now, when you look at stuff like that, it could drive you insane, 
It could drive you insane. But if somebody walked up to you and said, you know what, you've been doing such a good job, and uh, we just want to give you this new car. Well, what was I doing a good job doing? And, uh, you know, you're starting to question these. But the bribe, now I'm getting back into the political thing we were talking about this morning. Those of you who didn't know I switched gears, I'm just telling you, we switched gears there. Um, but that's where this verse attaches to in our hearts. Last couple here at the end. Verse 8, better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. Okay, now this is important. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. How many of you have ever been excited to start a project? Right? How many of you, in your excitement to start the project, never finished the project? I won't ask you to raise your hands. You know, yeah, it happens to everybody, doesn't it? Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. Now look what it's attached to. It, it just makes such sense here. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. In your notes we say this. A proud spirit likes to brag about the beginning of a thing. But the patient spirit sees a project through to its end. See, the proud spirit says, yeah, here's what I'm doing now. and got this going. And there's a lot of people who start the race. A lot of people who start the race. But the Apostle Paul, he came to the end of his life and said, I have finished the course. I finished the course. And there's not a lot of people who do that. It takes a humble spirit. Patient spirit. Verse 9, last verse. Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry. For anger resteth in the bosom of fools. Now, when you read that verse, it can destroy your feelings about who you are. Most of us like to think of ourselves as wise, right? We're wise people. We read the Bible, go to church. We want to do right. And yet that verse blows away that feeling, blows away our own theology. I wonder if anybody in here has ever gotten angry. I wonder if anybody in here has ever stayed angry. Well, the Bible says, let not the sun go down on your wrath. There are some huge components to this one verse. Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry. For anger resteth in the bosom of fools. In your notes we say this. Anger rests in the bosom of fools. Where it rises fast and continues long. Every one of us has an anger can. You have an anger can. You, you remember, any, any of you ladies still use Aquanet? Aquanet? That's old school, right? Um, my mom probably does. And she used Aquanet every day when I was a kid. And she would go into the bathroom and pull out her Aquanet can, and she would spray it, and then you'd walk in the bathroom after that, and there'd be a fog. Like it would descend on you. And there'd be stuff all over the bathroom floor. What happened in here? Aquanet happened in here. Yeah, just because she deliberately pressed the, the button on that thing, and it, it went out. And my mother-in-law used Aquanet, and her husband made her go out on the porch to do her Aquanet. I thought that's a good idea. 
Do you know, we all have an anger count. It's kind of like an aerosol count. And how many of you, you had no feeling of anger, not one feeling of anger, and then something happened, and it seemed like your anger can that was this full, had nothing in it, all of a sudden not only filled, but exploded within seconds. Like what the littlest thing to boom, explode. Right? Some people, you know what they do? They, they're like the Aquanet. They go home every day, and uh, no matter what caused the can to fill up, they spray it all over their family with anger. Sometimes they spray it on their spouse who did nothing to cause it. And uh, there's this spray going everywhere of anger. But anger rests in the bosom of fools. With godliness, with righteousness, with contentment, God wants us to take that anger and to pour it out. Get rid of it. Don't let it hang on. Don't let it jump up like that. You know, when you get angry like that, your heart rate explodes. Like, if you took your blood pressure 30 seconds after that anger episode happened, your blood pressure would be going through the roof. Because your anger can went, Right? I mean, it's just insane. And you know what we should do at that moment, those times? We should figure out what is it in my heart that made that happen? And what is it in my heart that can allow that to happen? And we should process that thought. That's what this chapter is about. That's the house of mourning where I actually have to consider what's happening in my life. But we would rather just go laugh it off, rather go to the comedy place, and let it happen again the next time. And so there's a lot to be said for these nine verses. Now, we've taken a different direction in Ecclesiastes. We're into the healing section of of, uh, the book. The first six chapters are more about here's what's wrong with us, This is supposed to be the healing part. But we we still talked a lot about our issues tonight. So that's Ecclesiastes 7, 1 through 9. Well, let's stand, and we'll be dismissed in a closing word of prayer. And let's all go home and eat some, you know what would be good? Cheese curds. How many like cheese curds? Oh, those are the best. Let's, Let's do that. Let's go home and eat some cheese curds. You guys remember when the uh, the dairy before it, or the cheese factory before it sold out to the other one, the Swiss Village, and you could go in and look at what they were doing and buy the cheese curds? Man, those are good. Love those things. We went to the Tillamook Cheese Factory and got some cheese curds. Not as good. Not as good. Not to demean the Oregonians in here, but um, the Swiss Village, that was where it was at. Some good stuff. God, thank you that we could be here tonight. Thank you that we could seriously take a look at our lives from time to time. And I pray that we would spend time every day to process our hearts with you and to allow the Spirit of God entrance into our lives. Guide us through this week, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.